Well, if you have a Bible, you can open up to the book of Luke, which is where we'll be in chapter 22. We are going to finish chapter 22 this morning, which we started two and a half months ago. It is a long, long chapter in Luke, chapter 22. Amazingly, not the longest chapter. Chapter 1 is longer. It's got 80 verses in it. But uh, this morning we begin what is almost like a three-week mini-series in the middle of Luke here because we are dealing with the trial of Christ over the next few weeks. He has been arrested by the Roman cohort and the religious authority. The secular powers and the so-called sacred powers have come together and they have apprehended Jesus. One of his friends has betrayed him. Most of the others have deserted him in fear. One of his inner circle, Peter, denied him during the most trying night of his life. We saw that last week. Now our Lord stands trial over the next three weeks. Today we see him in front of the Sanhedrin, and next week you'll see him go to Pilate, and then Herod, and then finally back to Pilate before his crucifixion. And as the trial begins this morning, we see the identity of Christ on display again, as it has been since the very beginning of Luke. And like the men who tried Jesus for blasphemy, we are left to decide in our own hearts what we're going to do with Christ, because we are faced once again with a choice to believe or to deny. We are faced once again with a choice to have faith and allegiance and loyalty uh, or to uh, condemn the Lord Jesus Christ. The men in the room 2,000 years ago in this trial that we're going to read about this morning were dreadfully wrong about Jesus. We cannot afford to be. So I'm going to start reading for us in Luke 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Father God, this morning we need your help. If there's going to be fruit from the preaching of your word, we turn to you, Lord. We turn to your Spirit who uh, helps us to understand the Word. Lord, we turn to your Son who uh, has saved us. And uh, Lord, we want to be more like Him. We want to reflect His image more to the world. And your Word can transform us to be more like Him. And so we turn to you asking God that the enemy would not be able to snatch away the Word before it can take root in the heart. We pray, Father, that the word would take root uh, in a real and authentic way, that it would not uh, be received and then rejected when suffering and persecution comes along. We pray that it would not be received and then rejected when the sin of this world and the love of this world becomes too strong. Instead, we pray that the word would be preached and received and that it would be transformative in the lives of our people, Lord, and in the lives of anyone here who doesn't know you, and that it would produce fruit, Lord, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold according to your will. So we pray that you would be speaking this morning, God, and we would be listening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
we start with an appalling scene here. The temple guards playing an evil game with Jesus. Deriding him and beating on him. Mocking him. Inventing a game where they cover his eyes up with a blindfold and they hit him and they ask him to prophesy about which guard uh, struck him and put their hands on him. The irony of the scene is they're saying, you know, prove to us that you're a prophet. Who hit you? And yet the scene itself is proving he's a prophet because he predicted that this exact thing would happen in Luke 18 when he said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and will be shamefully treated and spit upon. This is probably just another day in the life of these guards. They don't realize they're beating on the Messiah. They don't realize they're beating on the anointed one. Certainly probably don't realize they're beating on the God of the universe who, who, who created them, right? Um, who is sustaining their very life. They, they don't realize they're beating on on the word made flesh but it doesn't make it any easier to read it doesn't make it any less sinful and from there the humiliation continues as jesus is forced to stand trial before this council of ruling elders called the sanhedrin every jewish town with at least 120 men who were heads of their households had a court like this if you went to a bigger jewish town there would be 23 men who would sit on this court on this council in smaller towns, there would only be seven. In really small towns, you might find that there's only three sitting on a council like this. And in each town, the Sanhedrin, this ruling council, was to act as judge and jury in all legal matters. The Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was known as the Great Sanhedrin, and it had final say on all matters of judicial authority in Israel in as much as Rome would allow it. So the great Sanhedrin you could think of almost like our Supreme Court. Like there's, there's no higher authority to appeal to once a trial went to the great Sanhedrin. It had 70 men who sat on it. Some of those 70 men were chief priests from the sect of the Sadducees. Some were elders in the community, uh, nobles who were born into the religious and secular uh, elite of Israel, and some were scribes who were from the sect of the Pharisees. The law required that there were three elements in a criminal proceeding. There had to be a public trial, there needed to be a defense provided for the accused, and a confirmation of guilt, not just by one witness, there had to be two or three witnesses to corroborate. And these requirements were based on Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 15, which says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. And then on top of that, they had come up with their own rules, because that's what legalists do, they create rules, so they made up their own rules about how this whole thing should play out. Uh, according to their own man-made rules, two days are required for a trial where death sentence is being considered, trials should not take place on feast days, and the pronouncement of guilt should be made by the least senior member of the council. Well, guess what? They broke every one of those man-made laws of Jesus. Every law that they had made up and they had added on top of God's word, they transgressed every one of them. Because Jesus' trial here happens in the space of one day, not two, and yet capital 
punishment is on the table, right? They want to see him tried uh, for blasphemy and they want to see him killed. And yet the trial is not happening in the space of two days as it was supposed to according to their own law. It's happening on a feast day. And then on top of that, the pronouncement of guilt is made by the high priest, which is out of order. It was supposed to be made by the least senior member of the council. And then, on top of that, Jesus is tried without a real defense, and he's accused of blasphemy with no evidence that he had actually transgressed the divine name of God. So this whole thing is a kangaroo court from the start, right? But let's look at how it plays out. The opening statement from the council gets right to the point. If you were the Christ tell us. The word Christ is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Messiah. So they're asking him, are you the Messiah? And there's been no mystery in Luke for us as the readers. We know Jesus is the Messiah. The noun Christ is used 25 times in the book of Luke. We saw it in the birth narrative as the angel of the Lord says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We see it when Simeon held Jesus in the temple. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Simeon wasn't going to die until he had seen the Messiah with his own eyes. And as he held Jesus in his arms, he said, Lord, now I can die. Now you're letting me die in peace. When John the Baptist was asked if he was the Christ, he pointed beyond himself to Jesus and he said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. When Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was, Peter says in Luke 9 verse 20, the Christ of God. Luke has made it clear to his readers throughout his gospel that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Interestingly enough, Jesus would avoid this term when he was teaching. And that's probably because the term carried so much political baggage with it that he was very careful about how he used it. The Jewish expectation of the age is that when the Messiah came, he would overthrow the occupying Roman government, that he would take David's throne as an ancestor of David, and he would sit on that throne forever. And because of that expectation, Messiah is the one title that could really get Jesus in trouble with the Romans. He could run around saying he was the son of God, and he could run around saying he was the son of man, and for the most part, they wouldn't care about that unless a lot of people started to get upset about it and there was a riot or something. But if he says he is the Messiah, the one who is understood by the Jewish people uh, to be promised to come and to overthrow the, overthrow the occupying foreign ruling power, well then Rome is going to be very concerned about that. They cannot abide him saying that and then whipping the people into a frenzy. So at this trial, Jesus doesn't answer. I don't think it's because he's afraid of the consequences at this point, right? I think that time has passed. He knows he's going to die. He's volunteering to die, right? He's laying his life down of his own accord. 
So I, I don't think that he is being prudent in, in not answering because he, he doesn't want to say it and then Rome gets upset. Rome is already upset. He is heading towards the cross. I think it's more likely that he knows it is useless to cast his pearls before these swans and to answer this question. Right? I, I mean, even as they ask him, uh, if you were the Christ, tell us in verse 67, he says to them, if you tell me, you will not believe. Or if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. What's the point of me saying it to you? What's the point of me saying to you that I'm the Messiah? It doesn't matter what I say. You've already made up your mind. This whole thing's a ruse, right? Even if they wouldn't admit it, Jesus knows it. And plus, if he says yes, it just ends the trial, and they have what they need to hang him, and he won't make it that easy because there's other things he means to say to them. So we've seen he is the Messiah, but as we keep reading, we see a second title used for Jesus. This time, it's not a title he's accused of. He says to them this is who he is. He identifies himself in verse 69 as the Son of Man. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So he is the Messiah, and Jesus is also the Son of Man. Son of Man is a term that appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on 82 different occasions. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. It is the title he refers to himself as more than any other title. He calls himself the Son of Man 23 different times in Luke alone. It is a title that emphasizes both the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. We say it emphasizes the humanity of Christ because Son of Man was truly just a way to call somebody human in Jewish culture. For example, God refers to Ezekiel as a Son of Man 93 different times in the book of Ezekiel. So this is a title of Christ that reminds us that Jesus is a real human. He didn't just look like a human, didn't just have the appearance of a human, that he was human. And in this way, Son of Man is a title that says something to us about the humility of Christ. That the second person of the Trinity left the radiance of heaven to come through a virgin's womb and to be born in a manger. To live his life as an itinerant minister with nowhere to lay his head. Rejected by his own people as he ministered. Eating and drinking with sinners. Betrayed into the hands of evil men who crucified him. By becoming a man, the Son of God purposefully lowered his status in order to serve his people through a sacrificial death. Which is why Paul says that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, being found as a son of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's the Son of Man who came to die for us, to serve us through His death, to willingly subject Himself to humiliation as the God of the universe, to redeem us and reconcile us to the Father so we could be worshipers as we are this morning. So it emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, and yet Son of Man also emphasizes the divinity of Jesus because of this one passage in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, verse 13, Daniel writes... I saw in the night visions, and behold, 
With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7 talks about this one like the Son of Man who is with the clouds of heaven, who is before the throne of the Father, the Ancient of Days, which if you just read Revelation 4 and 5, it becomes very clear that we're talking about Jesus here. He is an everlasting power and glory. His power and his rule will never pass away. He is a kingdom filled with people of every nation who serve him. The kingdom shall not be destroyed. When Jesus replaces the pronoun I with son of man, he is saying, Daniel 7 is about me. Every time in the book of Luke, all 23 times that Jesus says, son of man, he is saying to his listeners, I'm the one from Daniel 7. Every time Luke describes him as the son of man, Luke is saying to the readers, he is the one from Daniel 7. He is the divine being who comes on the clouds with everlasting power, having acceptance before the Father and establishing a kingdom who will never end. In verse 69, Jesus is still responding to their interrogation about him being the Messiah, but he doesn't answer that, right? They ask him about that, doesn't answer that, but he does tell them that he's the Son of Man. And he says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God, which is a prophecy about his own exaltation. He's not delusional. He's not saying he's not going to die. He knows this trial ultimately leads to crucifixion, but he also knows that the same prophecy in Isaiah 53 that says he would be pierced for our transgressions and that the Father would be pleased to bruise him for us also says that God will not let his Holy One see corruption. So Jesus knows my body is not staying in that grave. My body will not be corrupted. He knows he will rise again. And when he resurrects, he proves he is the Son of Man. And he proves he is the Son of God. And he proves he is the Messiah. And that his sacrifice on our behalf is acceptable to God the Father. That he has truly conquered sin and death. And then he ascended to heaven and took his place at the right hand of the Father. And one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. And I think that's really the big point here. These men in their ridiculous, unlawful court think they have trapped Christ. They think they have him in their crosshairs. And, and now we're in a, we can judge him. We arrested him. We got him. You stand trial, Jesus. We're putting you on trial. You're not putting him on trial. Who do you think you are? He's your judge. They think they're standing judgment over him, but in reality, he is their judge. And that's exactly what he's telling them. I'm the son of man who sits at the right hand of the father, who returns to judge the living and the dead. You think you judge me, but you don't. I will judge you. When they die one day, they will answer to him. In Acts 17, Paul says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who's this man? It says, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's Jesus. We know that Jesus is the one who's going to return to judge the living and the dead because Jesus rose from the grave. His resurrection proves that he is the Son of Man who will come on the clouds and who will judge every person who has lived on the earth. Paul is speaking of Jesus, the Son of Man, in Acts 17. And here in Luke 22, the Son of Man is letting them know, you think you judge me, but I judge you. Now we look to the final title of Christ we see in this text. We've seen He is the Messiah. We have seen He is the Son of Man. But in verse 70, they say, Are you the Son of God then? Are you the Son of God then? And they ask Him this because the general understanding in Judaism, particularly synagogue Judaism, which is where the Pharisees taught. So in, in that synagogue rabbinical Judaism where the Pharisees thrived and had leadership, the general understanding was the one like a son of man in Daniel 7 is divine. So for him to say, I'm the son of man, is for him to claim divinity. So for, for the, the guys who have him on trial, this is even better than him saying he's the Messiah. They're like, this is great. You, you went straight past saying you're the Messiah. You're just straight up telling us that you're God. You're saying you're the son of God. Much like the Messiah and Son of Man, the title Son of God is one that we have seen throughout the book of Luke. We saw it in the birth announcement. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, Son of God. At his baptism, we saw it. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Even in his wilderness temptation, the devil knows who he is. In Luke 4, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And then in verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. We knew he was the Son of God at his transfiguration. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to him. All of the titles are important. Messiah, Son of Man. Son of God. They all say so much to us about who Jesus is, but in many ways, Son of God is the supreme title of Christ. And it is a title that doesn't just prove the divine nature of the Son, it says something to us about the Father, right? Because theologically, if Jesus is the Son of God, then Jesus must have a Father. And that Father is God. The Nicene Creed says it this way, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. And we can read in the Scriptures that the Father and the Son have an eternal relationship with one another. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know Jesus is the word John is talking about because in John 1.14 we find out that the word was made flesh and was filled with grace and truth. 
How can Jesus be God and also be with God? That only works if we have the proper biblical stance of God being triune in nature. If we understand Him to be the one in three and the three in one. That Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is God, but Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has eternally been in fellowship with God the Father, who is also God. One God in three persons. Three persons in one God. Jesus is distinct from the Father in the sense that He is the Son, and yet both the Father and the Son are God. So to be the Son of God is to be God. And just hours after this trial, the Father would give His only Son to sinful humanity as a sacrifice for all of our sinning, for all our offenses, as we just sang in the song, for all the things we've done and all the things we've left undone. And the eternal Son will atone for His people's transgressions and He will open the way for anyone who believes to know and to worship the Father. The Sanhedrin are stunned. They are astounded at the statement Jesus has made about being the Son of Man. But much like the question about Him being the Messiah, Jesus does not directly answer their question about being the Son of God. Right? You you see, are you the Son of God then? And He says, you say that I am. If you're charging me with blasphemy, charge me with blasphemy and find me guilty. Get it over with already. Right? That's what he's saying to them. I'm not going to stand here and be subject to your accusations in your kangaroo court. I'm above it. I don't have to respond to these things. He is not going to stand there and be judged by these men who actually uh, are, are to be under his judgment. And so he doesn't deny it. But he basically says, if anybody's being found guilty here, it's going to be because you say it. It's not going to be because I say it. It'll be because of your words and your witness. So they can use his own words against him and show Pilate he's guilty. He's like, no, 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 no. You do this on your own. You say that I am. The irony that hangs over this entire passage, of course, is that these men think they're condemning Christ, and in reality, they're all condemning themselves. He's on trial. They fancy themselves to be his judge, but in rejecting him as Messiah, and rejecting him as the Son of Man, and rejecting him as the Son of God, they are bringing condemnation and judgment down on their own heads. This is the anointed one who will overthrow every throne. And he will rule his people with peace and with love forever. But they are rejecting him as such, despite many of them claiming that they long for a day when the Messiah would come. He's a rightful king. They will not accept his authority. Therefore, they're on the wrong side of the throne. They're in danger. He's the Son of Man. He's the divine being from Daniel 7. But they will not set their pride aside long enough to rightly interpret the Scriptures. Therefore, they're on the wrong side of judgment. They're in peril. He's the Son of God sent by the Father out of love so that anyone who believes would never perish. But they are barreling toward their own spiritual death by not recognizing Him for who He is. We have seen decisions made in the last few weeks. Judas made a decision to betray Jesus. And Peter made a decision to deny Christ, despite the claims that it would never happen. The council has made a decision to condemn Christ, and in the process to condemn themselves. 
And the question I have for you is, what's your decision going to be? Will you betray Christ and, and deny Christ and condemn Christ and in the process condemn yourself? Or will you believe Jesus when he says he is the Messiah and when he says he is the Son of Man and when he says he is the Son of God? Will you agree with him about the evil of your own sin and repent of it? And will you agree with him about who he says he is and trust in it? I remember reading D.L. Moody write about this overnight guest he had. This, you, want, you know you're an evangelist when you set up decision rooms in your house, okay? So D.L. Moody had this young man who needed a place to stay. He was down and out. And he said, a few years ago, I stood at the door of a church giving out invitations to a meeting place to, uh, to a meeting to take place that evening. A young man to whom I offered one said, I want something more than that. I want something to do. I urged him to come into the meeting, and after some remonstrance, he consented. After the meeting, I took him home, and after dinner, I told him there was a room which I called the prophet's room, and upstairs was another, which I called the unbeliever's room, and I would give him till night to decide which he would take. He was able by night to take the first, and the next day was at work urging young men to attend the noonday prayer meeting. When I was burned out in the great fire, talking about the, the great fire in Chicago, and was left perfectly destitute, I received a letter with some money from this young man in Boston who said, you helped me and took me in your home, keeping me six weeks and refused to take anything for it. And I have never forgotten your kindness. I had lost sight of him, but he had remembered that as a turning point in his existence. We all have a choice to make about which room we're going to sleep in. We have a real decision to make about which room we will choose. Prophet's room or the unbeliever's room. I'm going to ask the band to come now, and as they do, I want to tell you that I believe salvation is from God 100% from beginning to end. He is the author, and He is the finisher, and He is the perfecter of our faith. And yet, there's this undeniable reality that we see in the Scriptures, that human beings have to respond. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And Joshua 24, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When Peter stands up and preaches the gospel in Acts 2, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. I see two parallel truths in the Bible. I see that God is sovereign in everything. And that includes our salvation from beginning to end. The names are written in the book of life. All that the Father has given me, I will not lose a single one of them, Jesus said. 
He elects, he saves, and he preserves those who are his children. It's his work. All glory to him. Nobody can encroach upon it. And yet, I see this other parallel truth in the scriptures. That every human being's got a real responsibility to repent of their sin and choose Christ as their Lord. Where does God's free choice and our real responsibility to choose, how are those things reconciled? Guess what? My little pea-sized, finite brain doesn't have to figure it out. Praise God. I trust Him in His infinite wisdom to have all that reconciled in His plan. For my work today, for your work today, and for our work today, we just need to worry about the human beings with souls who are hearing this message. What are you going to do with Jesus? What's your choice going to be? Because you've got a real one to make. Do you believe that He is the anointed Messiah? Do you believe that He is the Son of Man? Do you believe that He is the Son of God? This has become a little cliche, but I'll steal from old C.S. Lewis and say that if Jesus is running around saying, I'm the Messiah, and I'm the Son of Man, and I'm the Son of God, and He's not those things, then He is either a liar, and if He's a liar, then He's evil, and we shouldn't follow Him, or He's a lunatic, and if He's a lunatic, then He's like Kanye, and we shouldn't follow Him. You know what I mean? You're like, oh man, somebody's saying stuff like that. You just got to back away and say, I just can't touch it. Or he actually is the Son of Man, and he actually is the Son of God. He actually is the Christ. And if he is, then you cannot afford to reject him like the Sanhedrin. You will only be condemning yourself. And if you think, well, listen, I'm I'm not rejecting him, and I'm not accepting him. I'm undecided here. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out later on down the road. Just know that your response until it is to repent and believe, is very much a decision. Indecision regarding Jesus is very much a decision. Doubting indifference is just as eternally perilous as rabid rejection. And so the only proper response to the reality of who Jesus is, is the death of ourselves. It's the end of us. It's to say to Christ, I want no more of life without you. I believe who you are. I believe who you say you are. I bow down to you as Lord. I reject my sin. I repent of my sin. And I ask you to forgive me, not because I believe that I can in any way say words and do things that's going to manipulate you, God, into loving me. No, I ask you to forgive me on the basis of the work Jesus did, the perfect Son of God, Son of Man, the Messiah, who died in my place on the cross at Calvary, who took every ounce of the wrath of God that I deserve for my sinning, and then rose from the dead to defeat sin and death. And now He beckons all men and women to repent and to believe. So what do you believe about Jesus? It's a question that must be settled. Don't wait. The Bible says today is the day of salvation because we don't know if we're promised tomorrow. He offers you His grace today. Repent of your sin. Believe in Christ. Receive His grace and enjoy His salvation now and forever. Don't condemn Christ in your heart. You will only be condemning yourself. I'm going to pray for us here in just a moment. After I pray, the band's going to sing. But when the service ends today, um, I would love to speak with you if you would like to know more about salvation.
Um, Pastor Ben would love to talk to you about how to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If I could have our deacons, our active deacons in the room, just raise their hands. If you just look around at these men, these are men that can tell you how to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. They can lead you to Christ. So I would urge you to talk to somebody about it. And if you're like, man, that is just not me. Like, I'm not going to walk up to somebody I don't know or somebody who I do know, but I'm not ready to just kind of break that ice and talk to them about this. Then an even easier thing you could do is just send us an email or a text at connect at seafordbaptist.com. We'll get right back in touch with you because there's nothing we would be more excited to talk to you about. Even more than, oh, I want to join the church. And like, well, that's great. That's great. We're excited about that. But we're not going to get excited about anything more than, I want to know Jesus as my Savior. That's what's going to fire us up more than anything. So we would love to talk to you about it. Don't hesitate. Let's pray. Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, this is who you are, Jesus. I pray that um, our worship would reflect it and our living would reflect it. Our speaking would reflect it. Our thinking would reflect it. Our praying, our Bible reading, our fasting, our witnessing. If we really believe this, Lord, I pray it would show in our lives. And if there's anyone who doesn't believe it, Lord, I pray they wouldn't mess around. I pray there wouldn't be another day that they would go to sleep, another night that they would go to sleep in the unbeliever's room. That they would choose this day whom they're going to serve. If your son is not a liar and he's not a lunatic, there's only one option left. And that's that he's the Lord of the universe. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. What else can we do but respond with our allegiance and our loyalty and our devotion? Draw men and women to yourself, Lord. Stir their affections for your son, Jesus, and use your spirit to woo them and draw them in, Lord. And we know if they repent and they put their trust in you and they're truly saved, they'll never leave. 